0: It is not uncommon to hear someone say that all the problems in the world can be attributed to religion. The logic continues that if we just did away with religion, most of the world's conflicts would be resolved and everything would be all right. One might read this passage and think that Paul, to a certain degree, would agree, would concur with this. The religious beliefs and practices he once thought were essential, he now regards as worthless. Indeed, the only, they only lead to false sense of security. He's come to see that the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, has acted to fulfill his promises in a radically unexpected way. So where you put your trust matters. Paul, at this point in his letter, um, he begins by saying, finally, or further, as it's translated in NIV, and that usually is a signal that the letter's coming to a close. We've only had two chapters so far, and so it's kind of peculiar. Some scholars think that this might have been a second letter that just got attached to the first one. But it could also be that Paul was about to close out the letter, and something caused him to write this, because he tells them yet again, the theme in this letter, to rejoice, take joy in the Lord, my brothers and sisters. And then he says, for me to write this to you, we think it applies to what's coming next, is not, not a burden or not troublesome for me to do, and it's certainly to your benefit that I do this. And what he does is he issues a warning to the church in Philippi of a possible group of false teachers who may come their way and try to redirect their trust and confidence away from what Paul has taught them. Paul knows that this is liable to happen because this same group of false teachers have dogged his trail Uh, throughout Asia Minor and into Corinth and other places. And so they just haven't made their way to Philippi yet, and he suspects that they will. He presents also a personal defense against any expected criticism of these opponents that will try to leverage their position and their standing with the Jerusalem church over against Paul. And in so doing, Paul then reinforces where their faith and trust truly belongs. So let's look at what it is, uh, who these people are, and why Paul was adamant to counter their efforts. He takes seriously the presence of this group that seems to be on the horizon. They're not there yet, but they, they soon might be. So he wants to prepare the congregation and get them ready for how to respond most scholars agree that this this is a jewish christian itinerant group of missionaries who follow behind paul and attempt to convince gentile converts that in their relationship with god they've only come halfway to have believed in jesus has moved them closer to god but they they have not they have not completed the process and in order to do that what these what these uh, Jewish Christians believe is, they have to convert to Judaism as well as believe in Jesus. And the badge or seal of, of, of being a Jew is circumcision. And then also what follows is to keep the law of Moses, to honor, um, to honor um, the law and all of its uh, precepts and beliefs. Paul refers to them with three consecutive phrases that's couched in irony. Again, we don't always get the irony of this, so I'm going to try to pull it out for us. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Dogs in that day were not domestic. They they weren't house pets. They kind of were scavengers, and they were considered despicable... Um, animals, and they were unclean, so it was easy then for Jews to also refer to Gentiles as dogs, that they were um, they were far from God, they were not um, they were not worthy of God's attention and love and appreciation, and so they would refer to Gentiles as dogs, and here's Paul reversing that racial slur against the very people who consider themselves pure and upright and he said they're nothing more than dogs Um, he also calls them evil you've got to wonder which is worse to be called a dog or to be called evil because their effect is to undermine his work in reaching Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus and then he considers them to be in league with the enemy in opposing the gospel message. And then finally, he calls them mutilators of the flesh because they advocate the necessity of circumcision. And Paul um, sees it nothing more than an act of mutilating one's body and not as some meaningful sign of belonging to God, which is what originally meant for Jews. Jews. Paul says, those who lay claim to belonging to God's covenant people are you and me, not them. Jews and Gentiles alike who worship God in spirit and refuse to put their trust in anything except faith in Jesus as God's true Messiah. The very thing the Jewish teachers promoted uh, gave them a sense of confidence by this act of of, um, Uh, ritual ceremony of the flesh, and so he calls it confidence in the flesh. This very act excludes them from this new wave of God, this new uh, approach to God that God was offering through Jesus. In other words, everything had flipped so that religion or belief in Jesus was faith in what God has done, not in what we do. That matters, and this is significant because to to the even today, uh, Christian churches continue to have add-ons to the gospel, as if there are things that we do that make us right with God. And it's and the gospel message is it's what God has done in Jesus that makes us right with God. What we do is respond to that message. With faith, and even the faith that we have is a gift from God. When Paul uses this word "flesh," he has—he really is referring more, not so much to our our, um, our life of pleasure or our sexual um, orientation. He's referring more to one's physical pedigree or bloodline. In other words, who, to what tribe do you belong? Who are, you, who, who are you related to? How far back can you trace your ancestry? And how pure is it? Paul says, if you want to talk about confidence in those terms, then, which I think is misdirected and wrong, in effect, um, he says, I of all people should know better how wrong that is. But if they want to compare themselves to me, then bring them on. And then he proceeds to lay out his credentials. Um, if you want to talk about confidence in the, in the flesh, Paul says, I've been there. And by far, I have the most. I don't care who they are. So then he gives this litany. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, meaning he was among the chosen people of God. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the only only one of two sons born to uh, Jacob uh, by his wife Rachel, uh, his favored wife <laughs> and only the only one born in the in the promised land. So Benjamin is considered among the elite of the tribes and along with, uh, Judah made up the southern tribe that David was um, um, made his um, um, that David was from and made his kingdom um, um, centered his kingdom in Judah he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and as to the law he says I was a Pharisee which what that means that signals to anybody that he was careful and And earnest in his observance of the law and when it comes to zeal he said I was so zealous for for um, my beliefs that when I thought there was a group of people that was leading people astray from our from our Jewish heritage I pursued them in order to persecute them and put them down to kill them he said I persecuted the church Because I thought it was wrong. And now for Paul. And then finally he says, and when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to, he says, just examine, you're not going to find anything. I'm blameless. That's pretty boastful. And what Paul is saying is, um, you know, uh, I should know what I'm talking about here. I've, I've got the credentials to back it up. I have the pedigree. But the next word in Paul's argument is but. And it's a very, it's a very forceful um, transition because he now restates this litany in terms of its value compared with his encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ. Remember, he was confronted by God on the road to Damascus, where he was pursuing Christians to kill them. And God intervenes, and through Jesus, he sees a revelation of Jesus, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Um, so Paul now turns this whole thing on its head and says, whatever gain I had, I count now as loss for the sake of Christ. None of that means anything. If, you, if this were um, a T account where you have... Um, Credits and debits, you know, the way you do budgets and the way you keep accounting is for, for every debit, you better have some income to offset that, right? And, and so you better have some credits over here that outweigh the debits or you're in trouble. Um, and eventually you're going to jail. Um, but Paul says, if this was all credit, you know what I think of it? Just take it and put it in the debit side. It's nothing but loss. It actually serves to work against me. Paul is so emphatic of what that means that he says it's not just loss, it is refuse. It's the kind of thing that you would throw out on a garbage heap. More than that, it's the kind of thing that you would flush down a toilet. That's what Paul says. Whatever I thought was going to earn me God's approval, I now understand it means nothing. If anything, it stands in the way of God approving me compared with knowing Christ, compared with having faith in Jesus. That's all that matters is what Paul is saying to them. He states his personal knowledge and relationship with Christ has now taken center center place in his life, such to be found in Christ as to be accepted and justified by God. In other words, the question is, how can you be saved? And what will justify you in God's eyes? And Paul says, nothing will, especially nothing of our effort But if you trust in Jesus, that's all it takes. That's all that matters. Paul no longer depends on a righteousness that he can earn, that he can manifest, that he can follow or give input into. But rather, that's based on the law, but one that comes from God through faith in Christ. If I were to look at religious versions, and I'm going to exaggerate this, so please bear with me, of where we put our trust and where this can lead to a a dangerous belief, um, I would say that wherever you see denominational distinctives, um, as if somehow one group of Christians can be considered more spiritual. Or more advanced in their in their uh, standing with God over against others, then um, then that is a danger. Um, I'm reminded of the old joke where someone has come to heaven and they walk and Peter's taking them through heaven and there's a closed door and someone says, "Well, you know, what's what's that door closed?" And, and I don't want to pick on any one group, but the joke usually is whatever denomination you belong to, that you disparage the other one, you say, that's those, that group. So let's just say, do we have any... See, the problem in a church like this is that you all come from di- different backgrounds. As soon as I say one, I'm in trouble. Um, let's say that's the um, McDonald... Uh, no, let's see... That's the ps- ps- no. I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna call them Baptists, but basically, Peter's saying, "Be real quiet because they think they're the only ones here," and that's so true of religious groups that we tend to huddle and think we're right, and everybody else is a little bit a shade in the dark or a little shade to the left. I remember uh, a staff member who worked here who, um, who was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Um, she was baptized here, and, and um, she and her husband moved to another part of the country, and, and I've never been one to care whether you go to a Presbyterian church or not. I want you to go someplace, if you were to leave here, that where they preach the gospel, and they call you, into service of Jesus Christ. That's, all, that's what really matters. That's the heart of it. And this, this uh, person told me that they found this church that they went to, and she said, I think we're going to become members, but unfortunately, they want us to be baptized in order to become members. And I explained to them, we've been baptized. And they said, No, you have to be baptized because you have to declare your faith to the congregation. And I want to say, what is that? What that's saying is that what you do about baptism is what matters. And that's the opposite of what the gospel says. The gospel says what Jesus has done matters. And that we we're submit ourselves to baptism because of Christ, not because we're advancing our identity or professing our faith um, from one group to the next. We don't determine that. God determines that. I grew up, I can pick on the tradition I grew up in. Uh, I grew up in um, the Assemblies of God Church, and one of its distinctives is to say that, and and... And sympathetically, let me add this, that they, they read the book of Acts and they see the work of the Spirit and they said, we want to have that dynamic of the Spirit in our lives today. And the more they read through the book of Acts, every time they saw the Spirit appearing, guess what they noticed? People spoke in tongues. And so they came up with the distinctive that in order to have the fullness of God's Spirit, You must speak in tongues. Well, what happens if someone doesn't? Does that mean they don't have the Spirit? And nowhere do I read the text that it says some people are given a little bit of the Spirit and others are given the fullness of the Spirit. That's an add-on. Wherever you put an add-on, you make it possible for someone to think they're spiritually elite or superior to someone else. I don't have to explain this to you. You can be in the presence of other Christians, and you can feel it. You can tell. When they start asking you questions, and they go, oh, you go to that church? Oh, you believe that? And you go, yeah, I believe the same as you do, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he's my Savior. What more is there? The danger of such add-ons... Paul says "Is it threatens the very thing he wanted the Philippians to focus on, that their love for one another would increase as they learn in humility to consider the needs of others to be more important than their own. Beliefs that reinforce personal effort and boasting is always dangerous because it easily leads people to think that they're somewhat different than others. Paul's language reiterates the way of Christ in the hymn that he shared in chapter 2. While Christ did not consider being like God something to be grasped, in other words, something for his own advantage, he made himself nothing to bring about our salvation. So Paul now considers whatever formerly was gain for him, in other words, what was at his Disposal, what he could lay claim to, he now considers to be nothing, loss. Do you see the parallel that he's using there? To say, I once thought this was meaningful, and in light of Christ, I know better. In light of the one who gave himself for us, who am I to elevate myself in any way? And as Christ was found in human likeness, in order to win our salvation, Paul now describes himself as being found in Christ. Where we put our trust matters. It makes all the difference in our own sense of identity, our own sense of purpose, and our own sense of being of use to God in proclaiming the gospel. We're reminded of this every day, every Sunday, that we partake of this meal, that what it means to be found in Christ is to be made whole through the gift that Jesus has given, his own life, so that we might be made whole in him. You're invited to come forward and receive um, the communion that's offered. Uh, Turn to the right or to the left, where there'll be someone who holds uh, both the bread and the cup, Take a piece of the bread or a wafer and dip it into the cup. You'll hear the server say, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ given for you. The gifts of God for the people of God. A free gift to be received and cherished with gratitude and as nourishment to our souls. But those who are serving, please come.